Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. No fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. As you toy with the idea of succession or sale, what is top of mind? I would suggest it might be, how much is my practice really worth? David and Ryan Grau dig into the reality of valuation, common misconceptions and issues tied to selling your practice, whether to a third party or with an internal change of the guard. And as always, front and center, we've got the issue of valuation. I'm Patrice Sikora. And with two of the industry's most experienced pros on this topic, let's pull back the curtain on advisor value and valuation. It's kind of a gnarly concept, David, but it seems to start with the idea that advisory firms are generally similar and therefore can be evaluated with the same metrics. But is that so? Oh, it would be glorious if that were the case, Patrice. And frankly, I mean, going back to the early 2000s when I first started doing this, that was kind of a true statement. Big firm, small firm, they, for the most part, sold for somewhere around two times recurring revenue, one times non-recurring revenue. Some folks had fancy math to get there, but the end result was generally about the same. A great firm got two times recurring and one times non-recurring, and a fixer-upper got two times recurring and one times non-recurring. It wasn't rocket science. The industry has changed a ton in the last 10, 15 years as the M&A market has evolved, buyer's acumen has evolved, seller's preparedness has evolved. So now the simple straight answer is no. (laughs) It really, you know, despite, you know, what Ryan has been told most of his life, you know, size in this case does matter. And so when it comes to valuing these businesses, a, a small book of business, a nice lifestyle practice, which frankly can be wicked efficient, frankly, you know, far more profitable than some of their much larger compatriots, the valuation approach methodology, and I'll stay high level here and Ryan can get into the weeds on this. um, It is just different because of what we're talking about buying and selling. And at the small size, you know, maybe sub two or 3 million in revenue, you know, certainly uh, anywhere above that, you're really talking more about valuing a business versus a book of business. And so what has value there, the metrics that you look at are just going to be vastly different. Even if the multiple, for example, which we can unpack more later, might end up being the same. Coincidentally, big firm versus small firm just requires a whole different level of analysis. So I'll use that as the setup, Ryan. You want to peel that onion back another layer or two? Yeah. So you, you're spot on that it, size is important in valuing a business, but what's more important is how you use it. And looking at the, the key performance indicators, such as growth, profitability, 
the staff that you have in place to run the practice. Those are all key factors that we're looking for in evaluating whether we have a lifestyle practice or we have a, a true going concern. So as we think about, you know, a million dollar practice as opposed to a $10 million practice, it is also partly then, I mean, you pointed out, Ryan, like the going concern as opposed to, you know, handing it off, selling it to a third party, which is what most, you know, half million dollar, million dollar businesses are likely to do at the end of a career. Um, so we talked about size, obviously mattering and using different methodologies. What would you say to peel it back another layer? Like what what is the most important thing that you are looking at when you're looking at a $10 million business as a going concern, as opposed to a million dollar book of business? Like where do you even start? And for a larger practice, it really is going to be valuation is going to be driven off of its abilities to generate cash flows. Therefore, the operations and how leveraged the practice is, is going to be impactful to the valuation result. On the other end of the spectrum, a million dollar book of business, we're not going to place as much emphasis on the earnings capacity or cash flows for that practice. Uh, really what's being acquired in that scenario is the clients, the revenue generated from those clients and the AUM that's managed. The actual operations of the practice are less important. The founder typically is not staying on with the business. Administrative staff, maybe one or two will be retained. Licensed employees keeping a familiar face is what's important in those transactions. So point being a million dollar practice tends to benefit from synergies in that they're selling a book of business. How they operate and what it costs them to operate their practice is less important. Acquire is going to look at what it's going to cost them to service those clients and price that opportunity accordingly. On a $10 million book of business, you're actually buying a going concern, the office, the staff, and the operations that are in place to generate those revenues and cash flows. Uh, so it's funny you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Patrice, please. I was going to say, you suggested that that this has changed over the past couple of years, morphing different ways to use evaluations. Is this going to be a continuous, uh, continually changing environment? I mean, I would say, I think we probably have evolved enough as an industry that we, we've gotten past really simple, basic top-line revenue multiples where they still have their place for sure. But we've now, as practices, businesses have grown, they have evolved, they have consolidated. There's been a ton of consolidation and teaming. Consolidation sounds kind of negative. Teaming sounds better. Um, but either way, you've had a lot more firms coming together to create larger enterprises. So they've gone from a whole bunch of solopreneurs, which was fine, but simple revenue metrics worked pretty well for the solopreneur. Moving into these larger siloed practices, which was a good evolution, but where you look at a $10 million business, when Ryan and his team would get under the hood for evaluation, you start pulling it apart and you realize, well, really, I've got 10 different advisors here with 10 different books of business. It's really 10, $1 million businesses I'm valuing. To then shifting again to where we are in the last, you know, four or five years with regularity, where those solopreneurs morphed into silos, they've really morphed into true teams, ensemble practices. 
And so I think as a result of that, it's a trend we're going to continue to see. And so I would expect the evaluation methods, you know, now that are being used are probably here to stay because it's just a, a broader portfolio that can be used at this point to accurately value a 10 million, a 20 million, you know, $50 million practice business. And at the same time, also be able to value the, you know, half a million dollar practice. They both have their places. They both have ready and willing markets, which is great from a value perspective, but the valuation metrics, the pool and candidate of buyers, all of that has evolved to a place now where I feel like we're pretty stabilized. Ryan, agree, disagree? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. And you had mentioned on the science thing, Ryan, the a conversation I have at least once a month at conferences. Uh, you know, we get this question on webinars. I, I know you've been asked it. I just get asked it consistently of the practice owner who has the really nice, simple, clean, million-dollar, fee-only RIA lifestyle practice, and they read one of the articles in a trade publication talking about how you know it's all about earnings and profits. It has to be EBITDA multiples if you're going to use a multiple. And you know the EBITDA multiples are now in the you know can get up into the 10, 12 times range. They take their million dollar practice, they look at their expenses, and you know it's a hundred thousand dollars all in because it's just a really simple, clean lifestyle practice. And they're saying, well, shoot, ten times nine hundred thousand dollars—that's nine million. I could retire tomorrow. The challenge is the application and the kind of convenient hearing for some of these folks who are looking to sell their business. I think the multiples, as useful as they are, sometimes get misapplied. What are your thoughts on taking you know, a 10x EBITDA multiple and applying it to the lifestyle business? Uh, well, I'll try to keep this condensed. <laughs> but using an EBITDA multiple is usually not where we're going to start in value and a practice. So statistically, when we look at transactions for investment advisory practices. There are three common pricing metrics. Actually, four, three of them are more common than others. The three most common are going to be gross revenue multiple, seller's discretionary earning or earning before owner's compensation, which are synonymous, or an EBITDA multiple. The fourth is going to be an AUM multiple. Uh, the reason I'm going to add the AUM multiple is it's referenced it's not as commonly used and when we look at the relation yep. of estimating price based on AUM there's a very weak correlation so in my years of doing valuations never relied on an AUM multiple now working my way up the stream there on an EBITDA multiple the correlation of that to sales price usually is stronger than uh, seller's discretionary earnings However, the strongest determinant of price across the spectrum, across many different databases has always been gross revenue, whether it's a small practice or a large practice. Now, the next caveat here in using an EBITDA multiple to value a business, people like to look at their business as a snapshot in time right here, right now, this is what I'm right. selling for. So unfortunately, as practices go through growth cycles, your profitability changes. When you're gearing up for a growth cycle and you're feeling the pinch of we brought on new clients, new assets, we need to bring on new advisors, that new hire, which is going to be one of the most largest expenses for any practice out there, is going to decrease your earnings. 
but it's going to increase your capacity for growth. Growth is a one of the single most largest determinants for or strongest determinants for measuring value. So if you are at the tail end of a growth cycle and your earnings are at their peak, well, that usually is indicative of there's going to have to be more investments in the business in order to continue sustaining that growth. So as you invest in those assets, personnel to provide the services to the clients, your profitability is going to decrease. Valuation does not follow that same trend line of peaks and valleys as your earnings increase <laughs> and decrease. Valuation is more of a constant straight line through those metrics. So for practices where they have a true going concern, they have a turnkey ready practice with staff in place to support future growth, they're going to have lower earnings. That's where you're going to see these higher EBITDA multiples is those practices that are ready and geared for growth. If you're at the tail end of that growth curve and you're at your peak earnings, your EBITDA multiple is going to be lower because you've got higher earnings, but there's going to be there's going to be required investments in order to sustain historically observed growth. That's about as short as I could keep it for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Un understood. It, and you you touched on one item there that I had, frankly, on my sort of agenda to make sure we touched on anyway, or at least as a piece of one of my questions. So you said growth is one of those key value drivers, which, you know, obviously makes sense. You want to buy a business that's trending up versus down that much I get. But I know a lot of the advisors I've talked to, not so much on the valuation side, because it's been a long time since I've sat in that seat, but on the M&A and succession side, a lot of advisors will point to really strong growth with the expectation that that's going to drive a lot of value. Where I've challenged some of them, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is creating sustainable growth. I feel like so many of the, I mean, advisory practices, but I'll just say professional service firms, they grow because of the founder. And if you were to unplug that founder, all of a sudden, it, the growth becomes this house of cards where it only grew because of their relationships in the community, the relationships with centers of influence. They they were good asking about referrals. They would go out and network golf, obviously, but network, you know, and prospect. But it really, all the growth is coming from them. And then when we do succession planning, they come back and say, well, you know, the next gen isn't ready because they can't grow the practice. So to me, I feel like growth kind of requires a second layer or maybe deeper look at it? What, what are your thoughts? I mean, from a valuation perspective, is it just raw growth, all you really care about? No, not at all. Uh, okay. And one of the unique aspects of an advisory practice is they have a base of assets that they're managing, they're invested. And as the markets perform well, those assets increase, therefore their revenue increases. So they have this unique form of growth for which they don't have to do anything. Right. But that also <laughs> in a down market can be you know, detrimental to the practice. So we do look at we and we do when we're doing evaluation or performing evaluation, dissect growth. So market growth is certainly one attribute. Next layer is organic growth. So if we peel out market growth and we look at organic growth, how are you growing organically? Um, and where are those sources of growth coming from? Is it the right. primary owner that's out there pounding the pavement, bringing in new clients? 
how active they are. are they engaging in bringing those new clients in? Are they engaging in multi-generational planning with older clients? Are they completely re reliant on referrals? Are they going after referrals, new clients, share of wallet from existing clients? Um, also, you're looking at acquisitions. So if we look over the history of a five, six year history of a practice and we see spikes in growth, we can tell usually that that's either from the market or from an acquisition. So we'll want to isolate, pull that out. And again, look at the core organic growth for the practice and who's driving that growth. And another way to break it down is, and we run into this in divorce valuations all the time, is bifurcating personal and enterprise goodwill. And like you stated, David, if it's the primary owner that's out there driving growth, this is a practice with more personal goodwill that's going to have less value as opposed to having a going concern, which have, where you have a trained team and sales force in place all out there helping pull the wagon up the hill and fuel growth. Not easy, obviously, but yeah, just when I, when I hear growth, you know, being such an impactful driver and obviously I, I get it. Um, I just, yeah, I think it's important for, for advisors to understand it, it's about creating sustainable growth, the systems, the processes, marketing, <laughs> you know, something that just has been a really, really minor line item, I feel like on most advisors, you know, PL, their income statements, they just they haven't spent a lot of time and effort in it. And that's why, you know, honestly, like the work that you know Proudmouth does and helping us with the podcast, the, the work they do directly with advisors, you know, I, I hate to say it, but yeah, podcasts in our industry are kind of revolutionary. It's a really new marketing channel. And I think it's a great example of where we can turn the heat up on marketing and frankly indirectly create more valuable businesses because you can create pipelines and systems that we just haven't seen historically. Yeah, one so of the, one of the, yeah go ahead, please. I want to add to yeah. your comment there. Um, one of the most common mistakes that we see with smaller practices you know, around that million dollar revenue mark is when they're hiring, they're bringing in administrative staff. I can't tell you how many times I've seen firms between one and $3 million in revenue. And you look at their employees and they've got anywhere from two to eight employees. Some may be licensed, but none of them are producing. They're all in an administrative role in some capacity. What we've seen with some of the largest growing firms that have strong sustainable growth is that they're investing in talent that is client facing, that's licensed. Yep. Again, they're adding to the horsepower of the practice rather than just having the administrative staff taking certain tasks off the primary producer so they can focus on growth and bringing in new clients. You've got multiple people in place that are focusing on leveraging referrals, bringing in new clients and making sure that you're engaging with existing clients. Which is so funny because that reminds me of the conversations I know you have had and that I have had recently with a few clients where you all did the valuation and obviously you need to check your math because while their expenses may be proportionally so much higher than their peers, it's because Ryan, you didn't understand they're built for growth. They've invested in all this talent. How do you handle that kind of pushback of, well, we built that our current team, our systems and processes, we could handle twice the amount of business we have now. Like, how do you value that? 
So we have to go again, that's a here and now this is where we are <laughs> statement. Um, we have to look back historically on how has the business performed? <clears throat> where are you okay. in your growth cycle? So yes, if you have just invested in staff and that investment in staff is to support future growth and we have seen historic performance and we've seen the historical growth right. and there's expectation of future performance. Yeah, I mean, that does get factored in. Again, this is where we tend to see higher EBITDA multiples because you're at that low margin point where you've reinvested in the assets and the business is expected to grow. All right, Ryan, I've, I've got a quick question here. Yeah. Yeah. Suppose there is a market downturn. Mm-hmm. Does this impact the way or how a firm is valued? It doesn't necessarily impact how the firm is valued. So we're still going to use similar approaches to valuing. Mm-hmm. However, when we are performing our analysis, we make what are called normalizing adjustments. And we're going to do this for market upturns as well as market downturns. Again, valuations don't follow peaks and valleys in business cycles. So when there's a market upturn and we see significant growth across the industry in practices like we saw in 2021, that doesn't mean valuations are through the roof. So the question we have to ask is, how long is this expected to continue? And how impactful is this to the business? It's the same question that we would ask in a market downturn. And coming into 2022, now in 2023, Mm. uh, it is a very common question of, is my practice, is is the value of my practice going to be significantly impacted? Unfortunately, it's not a boilerplate answer of yes. It's really going to depend on you, your team, and how you're engaging with clients. If you're completely reliant on the market for growth, the short answer is yes, you probably (laughs) are going to have decreased revenue. You have fixed costs with your employees. Therefore, your EBITDA margins are going to be compressed. That's going to impact your valuation result. If you are positioned where when there's a market downturn that you're out there actively servicing existing clients and you're out marketing, trying to put in more effort to bring in new assets communicating your value to the marketplace and increasing your market share, then no, it's all about sustainable growth, Mm -hmm. even in a market downturn. Which is so funny because I know, you know, I've had those conversations, you've had them before where, you know, 2018, 2019 sellers we would talk to, I mean, we're adamant we had to really just focus on the last quarter to really capture where their business was heading. And then you fast forward to Q4 of last year, and all of a sudden they were singing a very different tune. Last quarter doesn't matter. It's more about the last, you know, five years, 10 years to really show what this business, you know, can do. And yeah, to thank your point, uh, the answer lies somewhere squarely in between, you know, depending on the individual practice. So what are your thoughts on other KPIs? We've talked about revenue and growth and profits. I mean, and that I'm, I know applies to every business. Anything unique? to the advisory space, insurance, tax practices that you know you guys would be looking at? Um, for KPIs, yeah, yeah. we're gonna, and one of the low hanging fruits that we'll look at is pricing. And we see time and time again, advisors where they have a list of clients 
where they have made some form of a concession on yeah. their pricing tier, their pricing schedule uh, for whatever reason in order to earn the business of that client. Unfortunately, it's not just a client. It's usually a long list of clients that right. end up impacting their average fee. So my advice is to most advisors, don't try to compete on price, compete on value. You need to be able to communicate your value. Right. Um, next is going to be profitability. Profitability is going to be directly impacted by your compensation practices and how you're bringing advisors onto your team. And we commonly see again, making concessions because there's this notion that there isn't enough talent out there in the industry, which right. is very nearsighted uh, in that there is talent. There just isn't the talent that most people are looking for, which is advisors with a book of business that they can roll into their existing practice. So yeah. um, commonly what we see are concessions on, we're going to bring this advisor in, we're going to attach them to the practice, but we're going to continue letting them operate as a silo. And we're just going to take a portion of their revenue. So effectively, they're still an independent business owner. Uh, or we see compensation strategies that are tied to production, where there's no upside to, or not, I'm sorry, not upside, there's no cap to the upside that they can earn. Mm -hmm. So effectively, they're being compensated as an owner. Um, so profitability, compensation strategies, uh, are, they go hand in hand, um, as we get into some of the more minute factors that aren't necessarily going to swing the valuation results one direction or the other, um, we'd be looking at household demographics. So given that this is a relationship based industry, mm -hmm. the older the client demographic the less perceived value there is because there's one potentially shorter relationship or client relationship expectancy with those households. Um, also, as they, as clients are getting older, they're nearing retirement, they're entering the withdrawal phase of their wealth cycle and starting to preserve and draw down their assets. Um, one way to combat that is engaging in multi-generational planning and, you know, hosting events or parties where you're meeting with your clients, but they're also bringing in family members where it gives you an opportunity to be front and center, again, communicating your value. Um, the other factor that um, is fairly important to valuation, in fact, it's one of the single most important determinants for value in the financial services industry is recurring revenue. So focusing right. on predictable, reliable, scalable sources of revenue through advisory fees, trails, or insurance renewals. So we started out by talking about, you know, we're talking at least around the topic of multiples, earnings multiples, EBITDA, EBOC, SDE, gross revenue. So I figured it's a good place to probably then close us out. The million dollar question where are multiples at this point, Ryan, and where do you see them going? Can you hit on maybe top line, bottom line, give the audience some perspective? So focusing on fee-only RIAs, which are the most consistent in the industry in terms of pricing. Um, <clears throat> right now, for what I will say, and 
average RIA generating double digit growth. So let's say let's call it 10% growth, 30% more profitability. We're usually going to see a revenue multiple somewhere in the 3.2 to 3.5 range. Um, EBITDA multiples are going to be closer to nine, 9.5. Uh, ranges that we typically see for fee only RIAs, uh, I've seen them as low as 2.7. I've seen them as high as four times. On the EBITDA side, I've seen them as low as six and a half. I've seen them as high as 12. So again, it really depends yeah. on the practice where they are in their earning cycle. Uh, where do I see multiples going? Um, right now with the state of the economy, state of the market, um, my observations over the last couple of years is that we've been holding steady. There has been the consistent slow increase, um, which 2021, uh, was an exception. We did see some pretty substantial increases in the value paid for, or prices paid, paid for practices in the value. However, as we turned the corner into 22 and 23, we didn't see those prices decreasing. They have held steady. Yeah, that was interesting. Frankly, for the first time you commented on like the slow, steady growth. I mean, for as long as I've been doing this, we've had, you know, either good growth or slow, steady growth, but always some growth incrementally, right. you know, over the every single year, even as you add bank financing and you go from like three to five year payouts to sellers to like 10 year paybacks now to a bank, you still saw slow incremental growth. Last year, we actually saw the average recurring multiple, I say drop, I mean, it's like by three tenths of a percent. I mean, a really small <laughs> drop, but it went from 2.83 in 2021 down to 2.8 last year. So first time I've seen it not have that slow incremental increase, but based on deals that we're seeing so far this year, yeah, to Ryan's point, I would not be super surprised if, you know, by as we close this year out, I mean, shoot, even as we do our mid-year update, which we'll do in June and release in July for everybody in the industry, as far as like multiples deal terms go, you all can watch for that um, here in the next, you know, six to eight weeks. We'll have that released. Uh, we'll put it out on social media and the website and everywhere else. But I don't think any of us would be surprised if it creeps back up above where it was last year. And as we close out Q4, assuming nothing crazy happens, yeah, we may set a new industry high as far as multiples go. So. Yeah. And so the, the, the 2.8, 2.83, you're referring to, that's average across the board, right? all yep. practices, all sources of recurring revenue. Yeah, exactly. Trails, 12B1s, fees, you got it. That's just our industry average, which then, you know, when you put the qualifiers on it for a, a good, sustainable fee-based business, you know, double-digit growth, then... Sadly, that kind of puts you in the rarefied air as far as you know, practices that are hitting the market and selling. So many of the folks in our industry up to this point, when they retire, kind of RIPs, they're retired in place, as in like they're still growing, but it's the market propping them up. So if you can focus on the things that Ryan was talking about earlier, some of those KPIs, sustainable growth, age of the clients, multi-generational planning, nobody here listening to this podcast going forward should be average. All right, then, so, gentlemen, how can advisors reach you? Those not average advisors. 
Of course. And no one listening to this is average, I know, or at least they won't be after they're done. So uh, in terms of reaching us, yeah, the website's always a great place to start, successionresource.com. We've got the chat there that is directly connected to our team, you know, based in Portland, although our team at this point is all over the country as we've grown. Um, Social media as well. Although I say social media, you might as well just follow us on LinkedIn Mm because that's where we tend to focus our time, our effort, our releases. But between the site... Uh, getting signed up for our newsletter that you can do on the site. We will proactively make sure we bring you the latest and greatest content. All right, listeners, follow this podcast. Let David know your thoughts. And of course, share with others. Thanks for being with us. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com. Or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.